we are about to peel back the layers a whole bunch with the foster mom who owns the Savannah Bananas. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Jack, and I'm here with Nicole, and today we are chatting with Emily Cole, a foster mom who goes bananas for foster families. Thank you so much, (laughs) Emily, for taking the time to share your story with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Such a topic that we're all passionate about. So always happy to talk about it. We have a really, really serious question for you first. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? That's so funny. So I'm going to give an answer that you don't get normally. Um, I don't drink coffee, actually. Are you a tea drinker? Uh, I do. I do drink tea once in a while, but we normally just avoid Starbucks altogether. We just don't drink the coffees, teas, energy drinks, any of the things. So we don't find ourselves in those stores. That is quite impressive considering you foster and you run an incredibly successful business. I suddenly have a lot more questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. As I sit here with like 32 ounces of coffee that I'm still yeah. drinking from this morning, I've got a dirty chai and a tea. Emily, can you share with us a little bit about what your immediate family looks like currently? Yes. So I've been married to my husband, Jesse. We've been together for, I think, 12 years now. And we have a biological son who is five, Maverick. And then we started fostering. We went through the process when he was one and two. And when he was about two and a half, we had our first placement come. And she was also two and a half. They are three months apart, exactly. And so she's been with us actually the whole time. So she's been with us for about three years. So she is five as well. So we have two five-year-olds. And then we also have another little girl who is almost two. She'll be two next week. So two five-year-olds and basically a two-year-old. Yeah, that's impressive. I've had multiple toddlers at the same time and that is hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're we're okay now. Uh, when we had two three-year-olds and a detoxing newborn, that was my roughest year probably. <laughs> but we're we're good now. We're all we're all floating. Everybody talks about the terrible twos, but nobody talks about the terrible threes because that's yeah. that's where it gets real. Oh. It does. I have an almost three-year-old and we are on the struggle bus. I'm like, where did my sweet little boy go? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So did you grow up watching baseball? Kind of. Very sports-oriented family. I've got three younger brothers and we were all just very athletic. I had all boy neighbors and all boy cousins around my age. And so it just seemed like every activity I participated in included some sort of grass stains or balls. (laughs) or something. It was just a part of our our life. And so sports has just always been a big thing for me. What was your favorite team growing up? So we're from upstate New York. We were kind of in the middle of nowhere. We didn't have a lot of teams really close to us, but we, of course, watched football and basketball and baseball. Personally, I played field hockey, so didn't have a lot of professional field hockey teams to watch. But from a football baseball standpoint, I mean, I liked the Mets. I liked the Giants, the the Jets, just different teams that were from New York. But I didn't really know why. I just watched sports in general. (laughs) We're from the Bay Area. And I mean, I think my dad would like to on me if I didn't root for the Bucks as yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I grew up in Jersey. I feel like everybody up there was either the Mets or the Yankees. And I actually think more people were the Mets. I think it was a little less cool to be a Yankee fan. How did your like you and your husband get involved in baseball? Yeah. So we were both in the industry ourselves. Uh, I was working for Ripken Baseball. So Cal Ripken Jr. was a big 
baseball player and he owned a company with his brother, Bill. They had a couple minor league teams. They had a lot of youth sports. And so I was working for his team. My husband, Jesse, at the time was the general manager of a team in North Carolina. And he was at a conference speaking. And my boss at Ripken Baseball heard Jesse speak. And she left the conference. She went outside. She called me. She's like, I just met the guy you're going to marry. So it was a kind of a, a cool beginning to our story. But of course, I'm like 24. I have no interest. You know, I'm out here trying to pave my own way. I was like, what are you talking about? I don't even want to date right now. Boys are silly. Well, especially as a female in that yeah. industry, right? Yeah. That's probably like high up on the list of like yeah, not dealing with do. the boys. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but honestly, it was mostly like, don't talk to the players. So I was like, oh, okay, somebody who works for the team, like that's like, acceptable. So we we did start talking just professionally, like sharing ideas. I mean, she was right. We, we were both so driven and had the same passions for the community and what we wanted to create for an experience for our fans. And so, yeah, just kind of all started there. I think that was in 2009 when she called me about him. And we just started emailing because that's what you did back then, I guess. And yeah, that's how the relationship started. So then eventually I moved down to North Carolina and worked with him at the team he was at. And we've just been working together ever since. That is very cool. You said you were talking about what you wanted for the community and things like that. Was that kind of sort of the beginning stages, I guess, maybe of the Savannah Bananas or? Absolutely. I mean, this was not... It's, it's frustrating when people say it's an overnight success, you know, that I'm sure that's frustrating for everybody. But this has been a, a multi-decade thing that has just been molded over time. And all of our experiences in the industry have wrapped up into what is now the Savannah Bananas. So definitely the beginning, you know, we saw the writing on the wall of less people going to games, less people staying at games or people going for an hour and then leaving, not being entertained, you know, they're not paying attention. I mean, bringing their iPads or whatever. And we just saw that this was kind of a, a problem and we wanted to make it fun and exciting and family oriented and something that you could go and do and escape together. And so it's just something that has been built over, over the years. With the Savannah Bananas, are there multiple teams that play each other? Are there multiple teams within the Savannah Bananas? Like how does that really kind of work? So this has evolved also. We were in a league just playing normal baseball, but then doing all of our antics like on the side. We got to a point, we we won the championship multiple years in a row and we were still getting a lot of pushback about the fun that we were having and how it was distracting to the baseball. So finally last year, we went all in and we left the official league that we were in and we've kind of created our own thing. So right now we are a professional team, the Savannah Bananas. We play our second team, which is the Party Animals. And then we also play a bunch of other independent teams around the country who have kind of open schedules who we can play. You know, they're not married to just playing people in their leagues. So we play those teams. But the idea for us is to, yes, it's to have more teams that can play kind of in our league setting and play banana ball, which is really an extension of baseball. It's a different sport with different rules and the fun and the antics and everything are encouraged in, in our game. So <laughs> it is a little different. Different, but it is helpful when you know it and you play it full time and you're not going back and forth between baseball rules and banana ball rules uh, because there is there is a big difference. If you could describe banana ball in one sentence, what would that be? It is a fast paced, more exciting, something for everybody, entertaining extension of baseball. I'm really curious how it has been challenging to be a woman in baseball. I think anytime you are a minority or you're doing something that's different, even if you're not a minority, but you're thinking differently than the people that you're around, there are going to be challenges. In our office, we're probably 50% female who work for the bananas full time. So now I honestly don't even think about our genders. It's truly just who's running what department, who's got what project. It has nothing to do with who we are as, as individuals or as our backgrounds. In the beginning, I, I guess it was tough because there's that stigma of, well, why do you want to be in sports? Do you want to be here for the right reasons? And even 15, 20 years ago when I started, it wasn't as common for girls to be as 
able to do the things that we do now. You know, we can write the press releases. We can come up with the scripts. We can we can screen the players and figure out who's that. I mean, we, we can have obviously all of the right tools to perform the jobs. So I guess it might have been tough in the beginning. I never really saw it as such as we joked about earlier. There was kind of this taboo like, oh, don't talk to the players. You know, that's a no-no. But we were all friends. And as long as everybody is mature about it, uh, I really haven't run into to too many problems. And I think that's why, fortunately, now Jesse and I are able to run a company where everyone is one big happy family. And while it is a little odd for people to date or marry the people that we work with, we have a ton of couples in our company. But it works for us because we travel pretty much full time. And so when we meet an amazing player or an amazing member of our ticket team and they're a great human and oh wow they're dating an amazing human like go figure they're also with great people or in their circle and those people want to come on board and join our family it just works out so there's a number of couples in our office and we're all okay with that because we all love each other and we're all mature and so we don't we don't really have an issue and I'm grateful for that because I get that question a lot but I don't think about my gender ever <laughs> in the I workplace well, I think that's really cool because whatever you had experienced before, you have taken the opportunity to create a culture where that's not an issue. What would you say to young girls that might want to be in a field that feels very male heavy? Um, the same thing that I would say to anybody is that if you feel like you have a place here and you want to belong in this circle, then you can. When you start listening to where you shouldn't be or, oh, this is odd for you to be here or to be succeeding here, then the self-doubt can, can creep in. But, you know, just like kids, it's like they don't see issues with places they're not supposed to be or, you know, it's just that innocence and that confidence and that belief. And so if you don't listen to the naysayers at all, then you'll feel like you belong there right along. So for any young female coming up in the industry, you do belong. Don't listen to anybody else. Just continue that narrative in your head and you'll succeed. For those of our listeners who are not, let's say, sports fans or, I don't know, living in current times and have a phone, can you kind of describe a little bit about how the experience at a Savannah Bananas game is different from a traditional baseball game? So we saw people being bored with the sport. Most people do not have the time or the patience anymore to go sit through a four-hour event, um, especially if they don't understand all of it and if it's not exciting. And so what we've done with Banana Ball and with the bananas is just make it extremely entertaining for everybody. So something that we concentrate on is making sure that there is something for every single person out there. We have a dance team called the Banana Nanas. It is a senior citizen dance team of women in their 70s. We get more people writing into us asking if they personally or their mom can be on our dance team than we ever expected. But now we have hit that demographic and that demographic comes out and they want to be a part of the dance team. We have a dance team called the Banana Splits and they wear green costumes because they're not quite ripe. And it's a team of little girls that does dances on the field and they fit, they finish every routine with a split. We have a group of adult men that have a little bit of a dad bod. We call them the dad bod cheerleading squad and they are the man nanas. We have the <laughs> banana pep band. It's a band that you would think you're going to see or hear at a college football game. You know, they're really intense. They're on the field. They're doing routines. We have that at a baseball game. The idea here is that there's something there for everybody. If you are not the best athlete at your school, maybe you don't want to focus on the athletes on the field or the athleticism or what's happening, you know, what the score is. But if you love playing your trumpet, maybe you're following the trumpet guy. Or if you're a little girl who just wants to grow up and be a princess, Maybe you're watching the banana splits. So there's something there for everybody, which helps with one, keeping the whole family entertained and two, making it a multi-generational event. There are so few things in life that you can go to now with your toddlers and your parents and everybody is happy for a few hours. And that's what we're, we're creating is something for everybody in your family so that you can go escape the real world together, put your phones down and just enjoy time together, you know, creating joy and experiencing joy at the ballpark. I never realized how much play you could get off of banana. Are the baseball players, baseball players, or are they entertainers? Like, what are they first? So first, they're <laughs> baseball players. The antics that we do don't work if there's not a good product on the field. 
Because at the end of the day, we have to be competitive and we're still, you know, an athletic sporting event. But that being said, the people who join our team are athletes. But knowing that they're coming into our culture and our atmosphere, they absolutely have to be entertainers too, or they have to be open to it. You know, they don't have to be the best dancer when they show up, but they have to be open to learning. If somebody joins our culture or wants to join our culture and they're like, eh, not for me, then they're not for us because that's who we are. So you could be the best player out there. If you're not going to let loose and have fun, if you're going to take it too seriously, then it's, it's not the right fit. So all of the people who we bring in now are amazing athletes. But they're amazing entertainers and they're also incredible human beings because we are not going to be able to listen to every interview. We're not going to be able to watch every interaction with the little kids or the grandparents walking into the stadium. But if our people are the people who we trust to get down and high five or to pick up something that dropped for somebody or to grab grandma's arm and help walk her in, they have to be those people too without us nudging it or telling them to do that. So really, we're looking for a lot of things when we recruit, not just their athleticism. You know, we've read about the story of your team, but it's my understanding that it was like kind of a failed minor league team. And you guys like rebirthed it into this whole thing. How did you do that? We were running a team in North Carolina, the team that my husband was the general manager of when we met and got together. And then we had the opportunity to launch a team in Savannah, Georgia. So there was a team in Savannah, a minor league team. They actually left. It had nothing to do with us. They left the city and went to another city that was going to build them a brand new ballpark. So Savannah was actually empty without a team. We were aware of this. And so we kind of stepped in and said, hey, if you're interested in having another team and keeping this beautiful, nostalgic stadium going, we would love to put an expansion team here. So we actually started a brand new franchise. We went over a million dollars in debt to do it because we believed in it so much. It was just buying the rights to a new team, going all in, starting this thing from nothing. I wouldn't say that they failed. They just stopped trying there because they weren't drawing a lot of people and they wanted to move to a new city. So they just kind of left. That opened the door for us to have the opportunity to kind of walk in and start something new. Yes, historically, all of the minor league teams in Savannah Anna Georgia had failed. None of them drew anybody. But it goes back to just the basic thing that we believe in. And that's whatever is normal, do the exact opposite. There are thousands of baseball teams across the country and they're all doing the same exact thing. They're all trying to have the best players and have the best season or, or make the best plays. We know that we're not the Yankees. Like we are not going to have the best baseball player. We don't have the biggest payroll for it. It's not the right age. They're, they haven't gone through all these different levels. Like that's not who we're going for. We are trying to create something different. And so when you look at it that way, it's not that hard to stand out. It's not that hard to, I don't want to say succeed because it was very challenging to succeed, but we weren't going after the same things. You know, what we're going after was drawing people in who did not want to go to a baseball game. We're drawing people in who want to be entertained, which is a completely different demographic. And so when you go after those people, it is easier to succeed because your pool is bigger. That's everybody who lives in Savannah. That's everybody in the country who wants to go to something and have fun with their family. We're not just going after, you know, the classic middle-aged guy who has grown up watching the sport of baseball. Like that's not who we're, who we're after. The majority of our fans are female. Speaking of being different, your husband is very unique in his clothing choice. Yes. (laughs) So please talk to us about his yellow tuxedo that he wears to every game. Yeah, he wears it a lot. It's not just one. Um, He has like 10 now. It was seven, but you know, we had to expand. So that actually started before we had the bananas and just having the bananas was just serendipitous that it's yellow, but he used to wear a black tuxedo to all of our games. But of course we play in the summer months and we were in the South and it was very, very hot. And the reason that he even wore a tux was because he was our PT Barnum. You know, he was the guy on the field conducting the circus and he used to be the only person who talked on the mic. Now we've fortunately hired and expanded and there are other people who can do it, but he was our ringleader. And so he wore a black tuxedo over time. He was like pouring sweat every night. So in his mind, going 
from black to yellow would really help the situation. And uh, it's definitely a lighter color. I don't know if it helped that much with the sweating. So that started when we had the team in North Carolina and yellow was one of our colors there. So it, it fit. But then when we became the bananas, it was obviously just perfect. And so now everyone calls him the top banana. He's in his yellow suit all the time. We love it from a staff standpoint because you can just scan the crowd and you see his yellow top hat and you can find him pretty easily. Yeah, now it just fully embodies the brand and who we are. And again, whatever's normal, do the exact opposite. I mean, he wears this thing when he speaks all over the country. And when you have somebody who shows up wearing that, I think it's a lot easier to kind of relax and just listen and understand that you can be yourself because I mean, nobody's going to get picked on more than him, you know, <laughs> And if he has the confidence to go out and do it, it kind of gives all of the rest of us permission to be ourselves and be true to who we are. And that's really one of the, the things that we believe in and, and embody. So what you're saying is he's brilliant. He is. He is a very, very brilliant person. I think it also really sets such a wonderful example at home to your children and any children that may be placed with you or in your home, right? Like be yourself. Don't have to take everything so seriously. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he wrote a book called um, Find Your Yellow Tux. And he wrote it a number of years ago before we had the success of the bananas. But that was the whole idea is life is too short and don't take yourself too seriously and whatever you want to do do it a couple of years ago really when we started fostering i was seeing too that kids needed that message and so i wrote a children's book called go bananas which is kind of the same idea as his adult version of find your yellow tux but that was more for businesses and college students and entrepreneurs who are just having a hard time figuring out what they wanted mine was more for little kids and it's about a little girl who is born with one arm but she wants to play baseball and she's different but can she do it and it's like yeah just be yourself and figure it out and don't let the people who are picking on you rule the narrative in your head and and be proud of that so that is definitely something that we believe in and although it's strange we still get funny looks when we're out in public because he's in his yellow top hat. I don't think about it anymore. It's just him. It's us. It's who we are. And so it's something that we strongly believe in is hopefully people having their own confidence to be who they want to be. Are all 10 yellow tuxes the same? Yes. So he orders his suits from, I think it's brightcoloredtuxedos.com or something. And then they went out of business because he was obviously their only customer. (laughs) Then our staff actually came together. This is really sweet. They came together without telling us and they had a yellow tux Taylor made like a really nice one. So he wears that one for his speeches, but now he's somehow found some other cheap website that will make him (laughs) yellow seeds. People always think they're like a big deal. They're like $40 because nobody, people think they're like a Because they're yellow. Yeah, they're not yeah. real. So they're really, they're really not that nice. And they fall apart, which is why he now has 10 of them because he just mix, mix and matches like which one he didn't have a Sharpie explode on the day before. And um, it's quite the look. My son, he's 13 and he's trying to find the right outfit for homecoming, which is in a couple of weeks. And last night he came up to my room and he was scrolling through photos with me, trying to come up with ideas. Yesterday, he had this idea of like, suit shorts with like a suit jacket and a top hat. I think I need to find uh, brightcolorstux.com or <laughs> yeah. whoever, whoever he's using. I really want to chat with you a little more about your experience in the foster care system. The first thing that I wanted to ask you was everybody has a different reason for getting involved in foster care. What was your first experience with the foster care system? As a grown up in college, I think I started to see more of how the world was just not the same for everybody and how people came from different backgrounds. And that was probably my first real exposure to understanding class and ethnicity and background because I I hadn't been exposed to that in my little rural upstate New York town. Going through college and then graduating and going out in the real world, I started having just, I think my heart and my mind pulled towards helping people who didn't feel like they belonged or feel like they weren't a part of something because I had always had that safety net of feeling like that. And it's such a beautiful thing when you have that, that security. I really just learned about it more and more. And going back to being a lifelong learner, I found some podcasts and some books and just latched on and listened to all of them and read all of them. And I think the foster care system is something that we don't talk about as a society. I'm sure you guys come across this all the time. People who don't know about it, they don't know what you're doing. It's this taboo topic that we don't talk about. For us, once we learned about it, 
it was something we couldn't look away from. And fortunately, we have this platform. And so for us, we were like, we need to shine a light on this because... I didn't know. Why didn't anybody tell me that this is a problem growing up? Like we could have helped. And so now we're just trying to be that microphone to shine a light on it and bring about more awareness. Can you kind of just give us a broad overview of what your experience has been like or what your involvement has been in over the last couple of years? I'm such a rookie. I don't know a lot. We learned about it. And at the same time had talked about starting our family, um, but we knew foster care was not, you know, a permanent thing. So we had our son biologically. And then you have that conversation of, do you, do you want to have more? Do you want to grow the family? What's that going to look like? And we were in COVID. COVID had just started. It was 2020. And I read a book called Everything is Figure Outable by Marie Forleo. And you're right. We travel like full time for our jobs. And we had a one-year-old and the world was, you know, upside down or ending or we didn't know. And so I had all these reasons to say no. But I read that book and it just kept speaking to me like, this is going to be hard, but everything is figure outable and you'll figure it out and you guys need to do this. And so my answer isn't what I hear a lot is that, you know, God told me to do it or I had this calling. It wasn't that experience for me. I just, I had learned about it and I kept learning about it and I kept listening and it was in the back of my mind. And then I read this book and I was like, no more excuses. You just have to do it. And so we signed up for information classes. Almost everything was virtual. We were like, okay, I think this is something we could do. We started taking the classes. They were all virtual. So I think it was actually pretty easy for us because we're just reading and then submitting things online. It still took us about nine months, but we got licensed and then, you know, then the calls start. And so we did say no to our first call, which is something that a lot of people don't talk about. And I love talking about because again, know who you are, believe in who you are, stand up for that. We were very new to this and we had a just two-year-old and this was an older child with a lot of aggression and rough behavior. And first of all, couldn't do the school schedule because I wasn't in one location and I, I couldn't do school at that time. So I needed younger than school age. And then two, you know, you do have your biological children and you have to think about them. And now... I can say fostering is one of the most beautiful things I've ever given my biological son because of what it's opened his eyes up to. But in the moment, you're in your first call, you're like, maybe I can't bring in the child who's very aggressive and who hurts other people. You know, he needs a different family to support him through something. And and that's not us. So we said no to our first call. And then the phone didn't ring for three weeks. And it was confusing because I was like, wait a minute, this need is there. Did I say no and ruin our chances? Like, is this how this works? But as you know, everything works out for, you know, how it's supposed to. And so then we got our second call and it was for a little girl who was three months younger than our son. And we said yes. And she's been with us for three years. Once she had been with us for about nine months, we got a second call and then um, brought home our second daughter who we brought home from the NICU. A totally different experience. So our two and a half year old had a lot of neglect, but was two and a half. So she was, you know, a person. And the next call was for a newborn who was detoxing in the hospital. So instead of date night, my husband and I changed directions, went to the hospital and sat and listened to DVDs for four hours on how to take care of a detoxing baby. That child as well, we were hoping for reunification for her. But um, sweet story on her side, her mom actually texted me on Mother's Day two years ago and said, I can't do it. And I want you to do it. Will you be her mom on this Mother's Day? This is the best gift I could ask for and give. Just a, a sweet story there that I know I'm happy to share with her when she's older. So both girls have been with us. So I say I'm a rookie because I've had two placements. You know, we're foster failures in the sense that I haven't reunified anybody, you know, and they're both on the road to adoption, which is, of course, a beautiful thing. But we got into this thinking we're not permanently growing our family. We're going to bring these children in, care for them, walk alongside their families and then safely reunify. And maybe we get to babysit someday. And now both girls are with us, you know, hopefully forever. Uh, we're not there yet, but both on the road to adoption. So that's my whole experience. I don't have a lot more. <laughs> it doesn't really happen the way you think it's going to happen. No, of course no. <laughs> you started in 2020. Well, my friend Nicole here also started in 2020. What was it like for you to start fostering in the middle of a pandemic? 
I guess it's all I've ever known. So I don't know what it would be like normally. I think in general, when you start fostering, you feel alone. I mean, unless you have been mentored or have friends who got you into it, you don't know other people who do it. And then of course, years down the road, you're like, oh, these are my best friends. These are my people. But when you start, you don't know those people. And so for us, I mean, just so fortunate that we did have each other and a family close by that supported us, you know, with our son and then with our girls when they joined us. So we were really fortunate that we did have a community kind of already built in, even though they didn't foster lots of families, lots of kids everywhere. And so we, we had that support. I think what's different from our licensing compared to other people is just that you never saw, like we never met workers. We never went to the buildings. The things that you guys and other people have done who have been doing this longer it's just a little bit different experience that ours is all through technology. I mean, even in the beginning, they would check on the girls virtually, which is like, how can you really do that? But that's what you had to do. Now I've gone back to the, oh, we have to drive in for things. And it's just been different. And of course, we still had visits with their families and having that barrier of you've got a mask on, uh, you know, we can't be in the building, we have to talk outside. So now it's raining. So we can't really just stand around and talk or it was just different because everything was quick and outside and protected and sterile. You know, you just didn't relax with any of those people or get to know your workers at all. I don't know how to compare it to other situations, but I can imagine that it's different. (laughs) How did you get permission to travel with them. You know, here we have orders that say you can travel for 14 days in the U.S. You have to make up visits, things like that. You don't have to have the parents' permission. But with traveling so frequently, not necessarily maybe during the pandemic, but now certainly, how did that kind of work logistically? Did you have to get the court's permission or is there a similar rule in place? It was truly a nightmare. Now looking back, I'm like, how did I do it? But I kept going back to that book, Everything is Figure Outable. And it was really, really hard because we were mostly based in Savannah, Georgia at the time um, with our team, because although we were in a pandemic, we're an outdoor sport and we were granted permission to have a season. So, you know, we had to have a lot of changes, like people couldn't sit next to each other. They had to wear masks. Everyone had to be separated. Everything had you know, plastic barriers, but we were one of the only sports teams operating during the pandemic. So we were based out of Savannah, Georgia. Well, we permanently live and are licensed in the state of North Carolina. We are up and down the highway all of the time. And we have to get tons of paperwork signed. We have to get lots of court ordered approvals, but everything is figure outable. You know, if you have a flexible job, which fortunately, Jesse and I run our own company, so I could take off if I needed to, you know, it makes it harder because you got to stay up and do the work at night. It's not like the work goes away, but you can drive up four hours to a visit if you need to and drive back. In the very beginning during the pandemic, both of our girls were having weekly visits. And so I was truly up and down the highway at least once a week to a visit. And what breaks your heart as a foster parent, and especially mine, is when I drive four and a half, five hours and they wouldn't show up. You know, you can tell your kids later that you did it and you tried and you got up at three in the morning and you packed the car and you made the bottles and you drove to North Carolina and you showed up for the visit and you turned around and you drove back to Georgia for your company and for the rest of your family. So it was definitely a logistical nightmare for us. We had the weekly visits for both girls. You have the doctor's appointments and the therapies and things. All of our stuff is in North Carolina. But the company we run is in Georgia. How do you balance all of this? The fostering, the running a business. It's hard for everybody. And I have a challenge with that phrase, work-life balance, um, because to me, it's all just one. And I think we're fortunate. And I know it's different that we we run a family business, family company. Our kids come to work with us. I, I understand that that's all different than what a lot of people have. But for me, the idea of balancing it means I can't do both at the same time. And I know people have a hard time with the idea of if you're multitasking, then you're not doing either thing correctly. But for me, that's just how we operate. Like I'm going to have to take work calls while I'm brushing somebody's hair. I try to see the positive in that. Our kids see that we are hardworking and we own our own company and we've paved our own path and that that is an option in life. It's not what you have to do, but I try to see the positive in it because there is absolutely no way that I can't do some work thing while the kids are in my presence. And there's absolutely no way that the kids are not going to come to work with me because they're a huge part of my life. Now they're a huge part of everybody's life at our team, which is so special for them. They have like 150 older brothers and sisters. But yeah, for us, it's, it's just not a balance. It's just a and then or, you know, and both. 
uh, for us, it's just doing it all at the same time. I completely agree. And I do the exact same thing. It's not a work-life balance. It's I'm going to do all of the things at the same time. I know you've had two placements. Were you able to co-parent with their parents at all? It sounds like your youngest you were able to create a relationship with, but what has that been like for you? Yeah, I think co-parenting can be a beautiful thing and kind of like how we are with our work team. I mean, our kids will run to a hundred different people in our office and I feel comfortable with all of them and they're not parenting them, but they'll text me and say, can they have goldfish, you know, or can we, can we run around the bases? And I think that it's that same village mentality of it takes all of the people in your circle to raise these kids to be the best adults that they can be. And so we wanted to co-parent with our girls' parents. And that was a hope of ours. We couldn't with our first really, but with our second, yeah, we went to doctor's offices together and visited on holidays and birthdays. And and when we could until it got to a point where we just, haven't been communicated back to in almost a year. And that hurts because I I did feel like we were kind of parenting together. Obviously, we can step up and do it without the support and the help and the communication if needed. But I think co-parenting can be a beautiful thing if it's healthy for everybody involved. I agree. So the most exciting question we have of the day, can you please tell us what is Bananas Foster? Oh, I love this one. (laughs) Jesse and I know that we cannot bring all the children into our home. Uh, I I want to, but I I know that it's not possible. Especially when they won't leave. (laughs) (laughs) We joke about that. We're like, are we going to keep accepting placements? And I was like, okay, well, let's be realistic. Are they only short term? You know? And so we joke about maybe just doing respite. And I know that even respite can turn into forever. How do we limit this? Because we are going to run out of space and opportunities. But anyways, Bananas Foster was a dream because we want to make more of an impact in the foster care community, but we know we can't just do it ourselves. However, We are very fortunate to have this huge platform with the Savannah Bananas. We have, I think, 8 or 10 million followers. I don't pay attention to social media, but some huge number of followers just with the team. Then you think about all the people who come in person to our games. We had over 500,000 people at our live events this past year, and we'll probably hit close to a million next year. So... How do you use that platform for good? So we had this idea of creating a foundation or a nonprofit that would help bring awareness, of course, as all nonprofits do. But because of the nature of our company, the Savannah Bananas are just pure joy and happiness. We are putting positivity out into the world. We wanted to make sure that our nonprofit did the same type of thing. So yes, we're trying to create awareness and educate people on the foster care system, but we wanted to also celebrate the good. And there are a lot of good things happening in the foster care world. You have to dig for them sometimes, but they're there. And so our focus is celebrating people who are already making incredible moves and doing incredible things in the foster care world while educating and inspiring new people to get involved. So we have this platform now. We started it in June. And at every single Bananas event that we have, we highlight a foster family on the field. I go out and say a couple things on the microphone. I invite this family out there and I basically tell the whole stadium that they're superheroes. And I share with them a little bit, you know, what's safe to share about their family dynamic. And I just tell people, this is going on down the street in your community right here, whether I'm in California or Oklahoma or New York or Florida we're saying this message on the field in front of 10,000, 20,000 people. And every time it gets a standing ovation and these people are celebrated for probably decades of thankless, you know, the thankless job that they've been doing by taking children in. So it starts with that. It starts with the celebration and kind of just making people aware by the positive side, rather than me go out there and say, these are the negative stats. This is what we're looking at. It's a bleak a bleak system. It's broken. Telling them all the bad things. So please come and do this with us because it's so wonderful. Terrible. (laughs) Exactly. So the idea is to celebrate them and to get people intrigued because um, somebody else is being celebrated for something and have them kind of have that mindset shift of, oh, I could do that. You know, I could be down there. I could make a difference. So we start with the celebrating and then we're educating and inspiring people to join them. And what's really cool is that every night when we walk off the field, so many fans stop and shake the hands of the family who have just taken off the field and they thank them. You can see the trickle effect of it 
turning wheels in people's minds. And every game, um, you know, we promote what we're trying to do. And so at the end of the night, we go on our website and we look every night, families who were in that audience go online and they stop to either donate money, volunteer, or sign up to become a foster family. And we've had 24 sign up in 18 events that we've announced this act. We just started it at the end of June. It's not people through us. You know, we're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're not a licensing agency. But what we do is we just connect people. And so when somebody tells us in Des Moines that they're interested, we connect them to their local agencies or the local DSS there. And we start the conversation. We make the introductions and we say, this is when the next information session is. And and we hand them off and then we go to the next person. So that's the goal is to just bring more awareness because I believe if all of us were able to just take in one child or two children, then we'd probably have a much higher success rate. We wouldn't have so much turnover that we have. And right now we're just churning and burning through foster families, as we all know. And so if we could all just focus on one case at a time, or we had a plethora of families and we were able to match children with families that actually made sense for them, you know, it breaks my heart when you put a little Spanish speaking child into a family that only speaks English. Like we are not setting them up for success. So our goal, because with the bananas is we have a huge wait list. We have over a million people on a wait list to come see a live event of ours to buy tickets. I mean, that's insane. I still can't wrap my head around that number. But if we can create a wait list of people who want to come to a sporting event to be entertained, why can we not create a wait list of families who are just in the wings ready and waiting for that call when somebody needs them. And so that's our goal now is to get to a point where we eradicate this need in America and we have a waiting list of families across the country. Yeah, that's awesome. What would you say your like biggest goals are for Bananas Foster next year? I don't know on a year to year basis what it's going to be because we said in the very beginning, we're not here to raise a ton of money. Uh, We're fortunate that the bananas are successful and are backing this. And so, you know, we do do little fundraisers, but that's not our, our major goal right now. And we also wanted to focus on the fact that every single family who signs up is going to change the trajectory of somebody's life. So for us, it wasn't necessarily a numbers game on a day-to-day basis. It was getting amazing families to sign up, whether it was one or a hundred per season. But I will say the ultimate goal, and this is not going to happen overnight, but why can't we dream it? And that is to get to a point where there are families waiting who are not receiving a call every time they have a bed open because it's taken care of by their neighbor. And we want that to be across the country. You know, we're starting in Savannah. So we're working really closely with some groups there. And we've seen numbers jump there. But we're traveling to cities all across the country. We want this to stem out into every state. What's really interesting about that is I I feel like I was very naive before I became a foster parent and really thought that I guess what is the placement department would be more of a matching department, right? Yeah. I thought that they were going to take the time to know who these kids were and know who the families were and make appropriate match because yeah. it's literally like we have a kid, they've got to go somewhere, start calling families. From my experience, they sometimes look at profiles when it's not as urgent of a situation. The idea that there would be a wait list of families and that instead of trying to put kids where you don't even technically have a bed available for them to really have families that you don't technically have a kid available for them. I love that that's a goal of Bananas Foster. So that's why there's so much turnover, I think, is because it's not a matching system, which I understand they're overworked and it's it's not possible. But if we don't change something then we're going to continue to have the burnout and we're going to continue to have the turnover. And then the same families who are really committed are going to have six, 10 kids in their homes, which is not healthy for anybody. Like you can't keep giving me more. That's just our, our hope is to kind of change that a little bit. (laughs) I think a lot of the problem is people are afraid to say no, because 
they feel bad, right? Think about if you had said yes to the first call that you received, your story would be different. And we might not even have Bananas Foster because if your experience was that with a child with huge behaviors, you've got to protect your son. You can't watch both of them 24 seven. Something could have eventually happened. And even if nobody got hurt, it would have burnt you out. It would have given you a certain feeling about the way the system is and the way that kids in foster care are. Maybe that would have been your only placement probably wouldn't have your girls and it wouldn't be something that you're passionately advocating from. And that's, that's a beautiful thing because you said no, so many yeses are going to happen. Absolutely. I love that. I'm still like stuck on the fact that you live in one state and foster in another. (laughs) I'm just curious as you kind of decide what you're going to do and what your personal fostering journey looks like. Have you guys looked into getting licensed in Georgia when your girls cases kind of close out? So if you continue to do respite or short terms or whatever that may look like, do you think maybe you'll do it a little closer to home? We haven't. Because we feel like now we've kind of built this community in North Carolina. So first of all, my whole family lives in North Carolina. A lot of our best friends live here in the neighborhood that we're in. And we have this support system. It's not like I'm alone in North Carolina. If I were alone, then we absolutely would. But another part of it is that people really have negative interactions and experiences with their local workers and DSS. We've actually had great ones. And so... I know that that's rare and I I want to hold on to it. Everybody in the department knows us now. Where I mean, of course, everything is still by the book, but they know us, they know our hearts, they know our family. They know that we travel all the time. I feel like I would have to start all over in that. And I don't think I would ever get what we have here. And so while most people are going to complain about all their workers, I'm going to go on record and say that there are good ones out there and there are good relationships that you can have with your local, you know, DSS or whatever it's called in your area. And I don't, I don't want to leave them. You know, when they call me, I know that they know our situation and they know our home and they know the layout and they know the kids who are already in this home. And I'm not in a place where I want to start that over. That makes complete sense. I mean, I wouldn't even want to do it. Like if I had to like start from scratch, forget it. Yeah. I mean, I'm also just tired just thinking about it. (laughs) Emily, can you tell us, you know, for our listeners and people they know, somebody wants to support what Bananas Foster is doing, how would they do that? Yeah. So our ask is, it's different than most, which I'm happy about and proud of, you know, it's not necessarily go donate money. We want to be connectors. So any organizations that are already existing where we can connect people, we want that information. We want people to tell their stories so that we can share those stories because we are all about putting the positive stories out there and kind of changing the narrative a little bit by saying it's not all negative. You know, beautiful families have been formed and beautiful relationships have existed or come out of these situations. And so on our website, you know, there's a number of different paths you can go down, but hearing people's stories and hearing the different organizations that they've been involved that we can support, if they want information about anything, they can go on there and and find out what people are doing across the country. It might make them at least feel not as alone in what they're thinking about. But we're we're really not trying to reinvent the wheel. We just want to be kind of an information source for people. So yeah, going on our website is is probably step one. And then finding out what on there speaks to you and how you want to get involved. There's a bunch of different ways that you can do that, that we'd like to hear from people. So with those stories you were talking about, what happens with those stories? In the whole sense of trying to to diminish the turnover. We put together things that we call potassium care baskets because we're the bananas. So whenever we hear about newly licensed foster families, we put together these potassium care baskets and we send them to people. And it's just kind of a, a pick me up and a encouraging, you know, pat on the back from across the country. But it's a way for us to help people feel not as alone. Sometimes we tell people go ahead and open it right now because there's a Target gift card in there or there's a Chick-fil-A gift card in there. And, you know, we want it to help your immediate family the day that you get your first placement. But we've also had some groups that we found out about a little bit later in the process and they're about to reunify some of their kids. And we know that that's going to be a really hard day. And so we say, here's a basket for a really hard court day. Here's something to open when you feel like you can't go on anymore. And there's just encouraging things in there. And there's usually a handwritten note from myself or the girl who runs the organization. Her name is Jolie and she's absolutely incredible. And she connects with these families on such a unique way. And so if we can just have those things there for them when they go through something tough, but it 
deters them from throwing in the towel, then this potassium care basket is worth it. So sometimes we use the encouraging stories when we put those together. Other times we just put them on our website or we use them on our social so that it's just a random person who comes across it, who needs encouragement or who wants to find out more about the foster care system or didn't even mean to find out about it, but just stumbled across and read this and is now like, oh, that's interesting. You know, we're still building these programs and, and finding out how to connect with people, but we partner with a ton of different organizations who are already working in this space and we're either donating financially or we're donating volunteers or we're somehow sending people to them. There's so many ways that we have not yet experienced what we're going to do with these stories or with these connections that we've made. But by getting all of them, we're, we're sorting through them and saying, hey, this person needs to meet this person or this person's in the same city. They don't even know that they're both working on a similar project or whatever. And so just being that connector has been a huge drive for us. I think that's one way that our listeners can really help out on the website is we all have stories like <laughs> we could sit here yeah. for a year and talk about right. all the stories that we have. And some of them might be a little more discouraging, but I feel so privileged that I get to be part of someone's story like that. These families, especially when they let you connect with them and kind of be part of what they're doing. It's like such an honor to to kind of be connected into hopefully someone's like turnaround story, someone's comeback story, right? Yeah. And to have that opportunity is like, it's so special. But that's such a unique outlook because when most people start, most of us would not have said, oh, I'm so grateful to these families to to let me in. You know, so much of us or so much of the world, we see these adults as having failed our kids and they're bad people. That's the outlook. And so if we can help educate people no, they're, they're being so brave and they're working so hard to get their kids back or they're inviting me in and asking for help. Do you know how hard that is when it's, this has been a generational problem? And so even by you telling us some of those stories that we can share with new or expectant foster parents, you know, I think that's so strong because it helps them see going into it what what it could be, you know, just to change their mindset of like, oh, I'm going to go in and save the day. Just not everybody's outlook, but if you think of it like that, but then you hear these other stories, like maybe I should slow down and respect bio mom, respect bio dad when I see them on a visit, because it could be such a different relationship than what my mind is is telling me it's going to be. So yes, I mean, we want to hear those stories. We want to hear that perspective from you because you said it so beautifully. I've got like a couple of families who just have invited me to be part of their family. And that that's the real privilege of being a foster yeah. parent. Emily, Emily, if you could change one thing about foster care, what would it be? I really would make it more of an accepted topic in society and I would get more people involved in it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.